Hello, everybody, and welcome to The Freelancer Show. Today on our panel, we have just me all by myself, and I am Eric Dietrich. And what I'm going to be talking to you about today is the concept of an economic buyer. This is something that in a Slack that I'm in, I had a few people asking me about, or one person, and then people asking me about it um, in a few other venues. And um, whatever you want to call this term, economic buyer, uh, I've heard it called different things, but it, it kind of means something that's uh, similar across the board and um, of particular importance. This episode is sponsored by Sentry.io. Recently, I came across a great tool for tracking and monitoring problems in my apps. Then I asked them if they wanted to sponsor the show and allow me to share my experience with you. Sentry provides a terrific interface for keeping track of what's going on with my app. It also tracks releases so I can tell if what I deployed makes things better or worse. They give full stack traces and as much information as possible about the situation when the error occurred to help you track down the errors. Plus, one thing I love, you can customize the context provided by Sentry. So, if you're looking for specific information about the request, you can provide it. It automatically scrubs passwords and secure information, and you can customize the scrubbing as well. Finally, it has a user feedback system built in that you can use to get information from your users. Oh, and I also love that they support open source to the point where they actually open source Sentry if you want to self-host it. Use the code devchat at sentry.io to get two months free on Sentry's small plan. That's code devchat at sentry.io. So let's talk a little bit about first kind of what is that and second, like what does it matter to you as a freelancer or as a consultant out there? Um, so I will get into that. All right, so economic buyer is a term. The first place I can remember hearing it, or maybe prominently I remember hearing it, is, is in the book Million Dollar Consulting, which I will, um, uh, I'll make one of my picks here at the end, so if, if you want to check that out, you can. But I believe it's a broader business term, and what economic buyer refers to is something pretty specific within an organization. Like, it's not, um, it's not really used, I don't think, to describe, like, you as the economic buyer of a soda when you go to the gas station. The economic buyer is specifically a commercial thing, and it refers to the person within an organization who ultimately has purchase authority. So it's a decision maker. And... Um, Generally speaking, this isn't as straightforward as it sounds, simply because purchasing in, an, uh, in a company can happen in a number of different ways, which I'll get into here shortly. But basically, this is the idea of a person in the organization, a specific human being, who can either you know get out the company credit card and put something on that credit card and be authorized to do it, or they can write a check, or you know at a big enough company they have uh, authority to go and you know make a requisition or to go uh, write up a purchase order and that purchase order will go through. So in some fashion or another, it is somebody who can make the decision about making a purchase. And um, different people in the organization have like different levels of purchasing authority. So depending on what you're selling and what your level of interest is, it's going to be someone probably at you know varying levels of the organization. Now, for a lot of freelancers out there, if what you're selling is principally your labor in you know chunks of like a month or more, like however long that may be, six months a year, that's going to be somebody ultimately that's pretty high up in the organization because you're talking about hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of labor that you're selling, and not just anybody can plunk down a credit card and and you know charge hundreds of thousands of dollars. So that's typically for most of you out there listening going to be a pretty significant person within the organization. All right, so before diving into this a whole lot further, let's ask the question, uh, why does this matter? Why are you listening to a podcast about this subject? And the reason it matters is because your economic buyer 
is the one that ultimately in some capacity or another signs off. So this is the person who controls whether or not you have work. Um, and beyond that, I mean, obviously, like somebody has to decide whether to hire and, and, and spend the money on you or not. But it, it sort of speaks to how you're going to conduct your own pipeline management. Like, how do you do marketing? How do you do sales? So it actually governs a lot of how you're seeking work, how you're finding work, how you're retaining work. Um, and if you're kind of stumbling into this by accident or you don't have a great sense of who your economic buyer is, it's entirely possible you're actually kind of creating a lot of work for yourself. So um, I think it's important to start to reason about who your economic buyer is within the organization and how you might cozy up to that person a little more, get to know um, him or her a little bit better and uh, start to think through some things like that because thinking about your economic buyer lets you then kind of work backward from there to form you know, sales and marketing plans and to ultimately make it easier for you to acquire and keep business. Okay, so... Um, to understand a little bit more, let's maybe uh, start with some examples of like different buying situations or different uh, economic buyer situations, I'll call them, as opposed to like different economic buyers. Um, and let me just dive in to explain what I mean there. So the first and most obvious economic buyer situation is that there is an economic buyer who is just going to make a purchase. One person making an autonomous purchase. So for instance, um, Let's say that this was some director or uh, someone in the C-suite and they were making a relatively unimportant decision. Like, let's say, for example, uh, everybody can probably relate to this, that someone in a position of leadership, you've been out, a client, out at a client site or doing something and they say, all right, you know, lunch is on me today. So that person has a credit card in their wallet that is a company credit card. And they decide that they're going to take you and all the different people at the meeting or whoever uh, out to lunch, you know, at Chipotle. And maybe that's a $100 or $200 decision, depending on how many people exactly are involved. That is an autonomous economic buyer decision. So that person gets it in his or her head to go make that purchase, and then they just do it. They're not talking to anybody about it. They're not really deliberating. Um, or even if they were deliberating, it's still them. And that's all that's happening there. Uh, another situation that's pretty common when it comes to buyers is you still have that economic buyer, but now you're talking about maybe a research assistant or one or more influencers within the organization. Um, so sticking with software, because that's my background and what I know, classic example of this is maybe you're about to start on a new project with a new tech stack and there's a couple of different IDE options out there. Um, and maybe ultimately the decision for which IDE everybody in the department is going to use is a decision that, you know, matters, um, tens of thousands of dollars worth to the business. So that's what's at stake. Now, if it's the CIO or like the director of engineering, that person isn't going to be living in the IDE. That person doesn't uh, probably care too much or know the exact details, like the nitty gritty of that purchase, but it's still going to be their ultimate uh, decision-making authority. But what they're going to do is they're going to enlist the help of maybe an architect or a handful of people to advise them on making this decision. And that... Um, that kind of gets to maybe uh, the second least complicated. So like the autonomous purchase is the least complicated thing. And then this um, this sort of autonomous purchase, but informed by other people is the second least complicated situation. Next up, there is this idea of a buyer committee. And for example, uh, the, or the example of this that just popped into my head would be, let's say, that your organization um, is overhauling your website and you have decided that you're going to uh, get a CMS and start a blog for marketing purposes. But 
there is some kind of internal friction and debate, like who is it that's going to support this? Is the marketing department going to look externally and enlist the help of some marketing agency with some third-party CMS on a subdomain, you know, blog.whatever.com? Or are you going to look internally to someone, maybe in IT, to support the CMS and uh, to integrate it with like your existing website if you've got a SaaS or something? So these are sort of complicated uh, questions, and they're going to touch multiple parties and multiple departments in that organization, uh, namely for our purposes here, let's say marketing and IT. So what happens is there's no one person that's going to make that decision. If you have like a chief marketing officer and a, a CIO, a chief information officer, those people, you know, the, the lowest level at which that decision could be made autonomously would be the CEO. And the CEO, maybe especially a sufficiently large organization, doesn't really want to get involved in this. That's not really on the CEO's radar. So what you wind up doing is forming what's called a buyer committee. And this is going to be various representatives from, we'll say, the marketing department and IT and, you know, who knows, maybe there are other interested parties. And what they do is they form a committee and that committee, whether through democratic process or somebody being in charge and taking input or whatever, the committee makes a purchasing decision and it's going to sort of um, impact all the various departments. So maybe they say like, all right, we're going to get WordPress and we're going to go on a uh, subdomain or we're going to get some kind of headless CMS and integrate it with our um, with our existing SaaS, whatever the case may be, there's a lot of parties at the table for that decision. So um, you can probably see where this is going. Like with each one of these, uh, things are getting more and more complicated. So bear that in mind as I continue kind of to talk about these topics. That's the buyer committee. Um, if you're dealing with a buyer committee, life can get pretty interesting. I imagine some of you who have answered RFPs have historically dealt with buyer committees. And then um, the last kind of major situation that I'll mention, I'll call it the system or the algorithm. And unfortunately for a lot of you um, listening as freelancers out there, you're probably most commonly dealing with the system or the algorithm. And this is something even below a buyer committee. Like a buyer committee is this thing that gets convened in order to make like a specific decision. A system is kind of a standing buyer committee, if you will. And let's take the classic example of a system, which is hiring an individual contributor, whether that individual contributor is an employee or um, sort of a longstanding staff augmentation, or in many cases, a freelancer, you are subject to a system. So think about um, if you are engaging with like mid-sized to enterprise scale companies, what do you do as a freelancer uh, when you go and you start to do work for them? Typically, you're going to go in and again, going with what I know, I'll, I'll speak to software, but uh, this could be, you know, any sort of knowledge work, but you're going to, you know, respond to some ad or somebody's going to contact you on Upwork or whatever, and you're going to go and you're going to do a job interview. And the person that you're talking to at this interview is probably going to be an architect or a senior software engineer, a tech lead, or maybe one or more other folks like that who are individual contributors. They don't have any org chart authority or real decision-making power. They are just kind of there to fill their part in a process, in a system or an algorithm. Now let's look at this type of hiring from, say, the perspective of the VP of engineering or the uh, CIO, someone like that. In this scenario, that is actually gonna be the economic buyer. But that person leaves basically a standing order for things to happen. And here's what I mean. The CIO or the VP of engineering or what have you is going to say something like, 
our staffing model right now is that there should be, you know, let's say 20 software engineers and five software quality assurance engineers and three UX engineers and, and what have you uh, within the department. That is what we have budget for and that's how many people we wanna carry. So in the event that we have turnover to prevent attrition, I leave with you, my line level dev managers and or directors, the authority to backfill those roles. So if Steve, the software engineer up and quits and you want to backfill him with Sally, the software engineer, you don't need to come get my blessing. You have a budget. We have a certain amount of uh, money that we can spend on recruiters and on staff in this department. You just go and do your thing until I tell you otherwise. So your economic buyer is um, making a decision, setting out budget, but kind of leaving a standing order with, um, with his or her lieutenants. And those people are kind of overseeing this interview process. They may or may not participate in it, but what they're gonna do is they're gonna deploy their most trusted lieutenants of their own, architects, to do kind of the standard thing. And so by the time this trickles on down to you, you are you know, doing the whole whiteboard trivia thing or, or whatever, and you're not really dealing in any sense directly with an economic buyer, and you're not probably even dealing with much of a decision maker other than in a very narrow context. Um, the people interviewing you have the position to kind of like gladiator style, give you a thumbs up or a thumbs down. And that's the system. It's where you're not really at all in front of your economic buyer. Your economic buyer kind of um, considers the situation to be too mundane to get directly involved. And that might sound depressing, but like in a very real sense, and this is why I kind of want to talk through the importance of economic buyers, in a very real sense, that sort of puts you in the company with like staplers and stuff where if you went whoever uh, to whoever ultimately signs off on the office supplies budget, that person is like three steps up the org chart from, you know, the office manager or whoever makes those purchases. So if you went to the actual economic buyer and you said, how did this red stapler get on Bill's desk? That person would say, I don't know and I don't care. And frankly, at a large enough organization, it's the same thing with the CIO, the economic buyer. Uh, how did this particular freelancer get assigned to this two-month contract to do X? That person's, uh, your economic buyer's response would be, I don't know and I don't care. One of the things that I find that we talk a lot about at the different conferences and the different things that I'm working on is open source software. And a lot of people have a lot of ideas around open source software, but we don't often think about the people who are building it and trying to maintain it. And I had a friend, John, who came to me. He's been a guest on JavaScript Jabber a couple of times. He came and he actually said, hey, Chuck, I wish there was a show about sustaining open source. And that really hit me where I live. And I have a few other friends who are working on projects related to this. So we all got together and we put together a show called Sustain Our Software. You can find it at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. And it's a place where several people who are passionate about open source come together and have conversations about how it can be sustained and how it can be maintained and what we can do to help these maintainers continue to deliver us value that we build our software on. Most of the software we're building is based on open source. And so it's important to us to have that maintained and have it taken care of. Come check it out. It's been really interesting to listen to the conversations that they're having from people who are working in it all the time and just hear what they have to say about it. Once again, that's at sustainoursoftwarepodcast.com. All right. So um, on that cheery note, uh, it, it's kind of the next thing I wanted to talk about is like which of these is best or, or most advantageous. And I feel like I kind of teed up my case for that. So if we kind of look back through the situations that I just listed, 
And I will throw out the caveat that like there are, there are hybrids of these, there are special cases, but in my experience, these are kind of the most common buckets of scenario. The way I listed them in sort of descending order is also descending order of desirability. So the more directly, you know, you're talking to an economic buyer, the better because of like a variety of reasons. Um, it, it has to do, as I mentioned earlier, with your sales, with your marketing, and just with your odds of success and kind of your control over the whole situation. So it's it's going to be a lot easier if you're, um, you know, I'm trying to go back here to the, like, you know, the Chipotle example uh, of the direct kind of autonomous uh, economic buyer. It's going to be a lot easier if if you're the, you know, Chipotle salesperson to just be talking to that person and say, hey, you know, uh, if you want to spend some extra money, we can get you the party platter with, you know, our new fajitas option or whatever. Imagine how much easier it is to convince Susie, the CIO, to make the party platter fajita decision than it's going to be to convince the whole group of people out to lunch to agree on that. And so that's really what we're looking at here. You know, at the top, if you've got the autonomous purchaser, you're just having a direct conversation with that person. That's the only sale you need to do. If it's a buyer and influencer, you kind of need, you've got two personas now and you're going to have to kind of speak to both of them, convince both of them, because you can maybe convince one more than the other and then enlist the one to influence the other, especially if you're speaking directly to the economic buyer, you might get that person to uh, grudgingly bring the influencer along. Uh, I think that was the entire model for IBM's rational clear case over the course of the 90s and early to mid 2000s. Sorry, I had to throw that out there. I just, it was this source control system that just made me want to die. And I was always convinced the only way it got into organizations was like golf games between the sales uh, reps of rational clear case and VPs at the companies where I worked because no engineer would have ever wanted it. Anyway, um, that's kind of the influencer-purchaser dynamic. You still have to kind of convince two people. You can convince one of them to exert a lot of influence over the other, but you're selling both of them. Now, if you get into the buyer committee, you're sort of taking more and more of a crapshoot because you're not really going to convince like 10 different people necessarily. Uh, you just got to kind of convince as many of them as possible and hope for the best. And then if you get into the system, you have to convince somebody who... The economic buyer doesn't often even directly care about. So the system is kind of the worst place to be. That's just, you're almost defaulting into your pipeline management and sales and acquisition and all that of just being like salaried employment. You're just kind of going around and throwing yourself on the random mercy of the job interview process. So the system is sort of the least advantageous. And the more and more you can work your way towards getting that um, direct ear of the economic buyer the better off that you're going to be. All right, so I guess what I'm going to talk about next here is maybe some examples of these economic buyers. Now, I already gave a pretty good example of what a committee is like with the whole um, CMS decision between marketing and IT. But let me walk a little bit, I guess, through the top level economic buyer kind of situation, because it's not like I can just blanket say like the CIO is always going to be your economic buyer. Because first of all, um, your economic buyer is going to vary by the size of the organization. And the larger the organization, the more vertically distributed economic buyer situations get. So what I mean by this is like if you have a small enough business that's just a founder and a, you know, a handful of leaders and some contractors, your economic buyer is going to be kind of one person. Like it's going to be anyone in that leadership team or whatever. 
as that business grows, you're still not going to have a ton of verticality in the economic buyers as they hire some individual contributors or maybe odd managers. They're still probably going to retain economic buying authority. But as you get bigger and bigger, what will happen is you might, at a very large organization, have a CIO or even like a program CIO at a significantly large organization. And that person's obviously going to have plenty of buying authority, but they might also delegate some of that down to the VP level or the director level below that. So you might have a situation where the CIO can, you know, let's, uh, for simplicity's sake, the CIO can make any decisions autonomously up to a million dollars. And then the CIO kind of grants budgets um, to people at the director level or what have you and lets those people autonomously make purchase decisions, say, up to $100,000. So you can distribute um, economic buyerhood vertically throughout the organization, which means that not all economic buyers are going to occupy the same role or have the same title. But what you will start to see is that typically as you get down to that line manager level, um, the economic buying authority, the autonomous authority there gets pretty small. If you think about your manager, um, if you used to work in, in a salaried situation in a lot of organizations, what's the economic buying authority there? Often it's kind of relegated to things like lunch at chilies for the team or, or things of that nature. They're not going to be able to make uh, economic decisions that are too major. In some organizations, they might um, be able to make like uh, kind of relatively minor decisions about the sort of software and the software subscriptions that the team uses, but it's going to be pretty minimal. And once you get down to the individual contributor level, uh, where there are no direct reports happening, usually the economic buying authority there is pretty much none. Occasionally, you might get like some discretionary budget for somebody that's a engineer where you get, you know, a $500 or $1,500 a year learning budget. And so you can go make a decision to, you know, do a Pluralsight course or whatever the case may be. So sometimes you do have a bit of, um, of buying authority. You can be an economic buyer at the individual contributor level, but that's more the exception than the rule. Like typically, you even have to get approval. Uh, for, you know, whatever you're going to spend your learning budget on. Typically, you're getting approval if you go out to lunch, like maybe you submit that for reimbursement and everybody, like, theoretically, somebody's looking through all your receipts and saying like, hey, did you spend too much at tchotchkes today? Um, so you don't, you know, the further down the organization you get, the smaller and smaller the scope of any economic buyer is going to be. Now, I guess examples of um, economic buyer and influencer covered that a little bit. Um, but generally speaking, it's going to be any situation where a person is making decisions that will impact those below them in the org chart. Um, and they don't necessarily have the boots on the ground experience to understand that. That's probably the most common one. Another common situation is um, that maybe I'm trying to think of uh, like th there was a good example where um, in my business hit subscribe. I have somebody who's reporting to me. And I just didn't have time. We wanted to pick some teleconferencing software. So I asked her if she would go do some research. And this is kind of the influencer research assistant position. So I was perfectly capable of going out and researching the different options for, uh, you know, teleconferencing software, but I didn't really have time. And I was happy to defer to her expertise on that after doing the research herself. So I delegated the research, but I was the economic buyer. These are the kind of uh, buyer influencer situations. 
the buyer by committee, um, it's a lot of decisions in which there are multiple stakeholders. So often like, you know, an RFP for the new company website is a classic example, but you could go through and list a lot of different things. It's, it's anything that's going to have like interdepartmental scope and ramifications. It, it's where you've got a lot of stakeholders. And then the system is probably the way a lot of like default purchasing happens and the way that a lot of, um, of hiring at the individual contributor level, especially contractors and, and, you know, speaking to the audience here, freelancers, a lot of that really happens as part of a system, kind of like backfilling budgets, you know, how we do hiring, here are all the questions you have to ask, and here's how hiring decisions work, and we don't want to get sued. Um, so you get into systems there, and that's what systems look like. Um, so I think, you know, probably by this point, I've maybe made my case for the idea that the economic buyer, like the, the closer you can be to the economic buyer, the better. Um, to really drive that home, let me talk a little bit about um, what the difference is, I guess, from a sales and marketing perspective. Like you can probably uh, gather this by now, but like if you start with the system, think about how you go about refining. How do you become more efficient at getting work if your buyer is a system? think job interviews. And the answer to that is more or less you don't. Now you're going to see all kinds of stuff out there, especially in the world of software. I think it's just way worse than other engineering and knowledge work disciplines. But you know, you go find all the stuff about like how to get better at job interviews for some definition of better, but it's really like pretty random. You know, they go and ask you to like in, invert a binary tree on a whiteboard. And if you just happen to have studied that, you're going to do well. If not, not so much. Uh, it's really hard to get better at that sales process because it's a different sales process everywhere you go. It's very custom uh, to that client. I, I, I hesitate to even call it a sales process, frankly. It's a different process everywhere you go. So you're not going to be able to take how I aced the interview at Acme Inc. and uh, apply that necessarily to Beta LLC. So it's hard to get efficient at it and you would have to spend an outsized amount of time. Like if you want to go interview to be a contractor at kind of Silicon Valley style companies, you're going to have to go and practice, you know, your uh, O notation or whatever for months um, versus like, let's take it up one level uh, appealing to a buyer committee. You can get some practice there if your style of uh, sale is speaking to a room filled with people that are stakeholders from the marketing department and from the IT department, and you're trying to convince them to go with your particular uh, specific CMS solution. You can kind of practice that because you're going to have more of an ability to control that room. You're going to have more of an ability to uh, talk about like, hey, you know, this is how my CMS product and service works. I speak to a lot of rooms full of stakeholders like this. You can get some practice uh, addressing the different people that might be in there. So you can actually get more efficient and you can also sort of reason about how to market to the different people in that process. Now at the next level, um, things start to get even easier. If you have buyer and influencer or buyer and research assistant, now you're down to only basically two personas that you have to speak to, only one of whom you necessarily need to convince because one of them can really trump the other one. And now you're going to have this kind of two-pronged marketing and two-pronged sales approach. And actually, uh, with, with our business hit subscribe, uh, the clients that we work with who make a lot of dev tools and SaaSes, this is sort of the classic problem in the folks that they're selling to. They're selling to a lot of engineers and those engineers need to go get purchase authority from their managers. So I'm actually pretty used to the uh, conundrum of speaking to these two different personas. It's very manageable. But the best situation of all is where you're just speaking to a single buyer. Doesn't get any better than that because you just have one person to convince 
one person to get to know, one person to market to, one person to sell to. Um, and I can speak from experience as, uh, in as much as I do consulting anymore, which isn't that often, I'm always engaged with somebody that can write a check. That has become, uh, as Alan Weiss in his Million Dollar Consulting book suggests uh, that you should do, that has become kind of non-negotiable for me. I don't want to deal with buyer committees. I don't want to deal with influencers. I just want to deal with the person that's going to write the check. It's just easier, easier to sell, easier to market, easier to stay engaged, et cetera. One of my favorite communities to get involved with these days is the Angular community. There are so many great people there. We've had a lot of them on Adventures in Angular over the last several years. And I really wanted to just highlight people and give you a chance to get to know the flavor and the feel of being around some of these awesome people. We've talked to people on the Angular Core team. We've talked to people who have organized the conferences. We've talked to some of the co-hosts that I've had on Adventures in Angular. Nowadays, Aaron Frost is running the show and he's doing the same thing. Typically, he's been doing it at conferences lately, which is a lot of fun. But you get to hear what these people are about and why they care and how they get involved with other people in the Angular community. So if you're looking for that connection in the Angular community and a way to really understand the people who are involved in the Angular community, then go check out My Angular Story. You can find it at myangularstory.com. So um, if you're convinced of that, I guess the, the next question then and, and sort of the theme that I'll close here with is how do you uh, work towards engaging with the economic buyer, especially if you're starting from, you know, working on Upwork or Fiverr or whatever it is people do, uh, to getting plugged directly into a system. How do you go from being into that, you know, being at the bottom of that system uh, to speaking with an economic buyer who currently doesn't even know you exist? And that's a super tough question. I don't have a one size fits all answer and I don't have like a path I can just lay out for you. I'd probably be rich if I did. But the first thing I'll suggest is number one, the larger the organization, the more of a soul-crushing system it's going to have, and and you're probably coming in at the bottom. So if you're currently contracting in the enterprise and you want to get in front of an economic buyer, one of the things you can do right off the bat is think about um, switching it up and starting to market to smaller organizations. If you're starting to market to startups or like small associations or whatever the case may be, uh, by definition, they're not really going to have a system. There's only like six people working there you're going to be talking either to an influencer or to an economic buyer or both. Um, so that's maybe the easiest thing is start to think about what you're doing and ask yourself if you couldn't do it at a smaller organization. Because once you start doing it at a smaller organization, you're engaged with an economic buyer. It becomes easier to tune your message to the economic buyer uh, at a slightly larger organization. Now, that's not true if you remain in pure like individual contributor mode, if you're just supplying labor. Uh, so another thing that I'll say is a good way of reasoning about how to get more in front of an economic buyer is that you can start to, I know Jonathan Stark, you know, panelist on the show talks about uh, this a lot and, and I talk about it um, sometimes on my blog and in other venues. If you think of this four-step process of problem solving for businesses, you've got uh, first you diagnose the problem, then you prescribe a therapy, then you apply the therapy, and then maybe if necessary, you reapply the therapy. And as with the theme of this episode, those kind of occur in descending value order. So the most important thing is diagnosing a problem like, and then uh, followed closely by uh, prescribing a therapy. So figuring out what the problem is and what you're going to do about it, that's like where the strategy resides. Then you've got the application of the therapy, important, 
but not as important. And unfortunately, application of the therapy is where most individual contributor, knowledge workers, kind of going out, hanging their shingling, doing freelance work, you're probably engaged at the apply the, ther- apply the therapy level. All the strategy has been taken care of, and you're kind of going in through this buyer system to serve your specific role in the application of the therapy, or maybe even the reapplication of the therapy if you're kind of brought in to do some kind of maintenance. So another way that you can start to work your way towards the economic buyer is to look at your context and start thinking, okay, what diagnosis happened that got me to the position that I'm in doing this application of the therapy? And what, or excuse me, what prescription happened, you know, uh, to get me into this position? And then what diagnosis occurred in order to put me there? So just to cite a really simple example, maybe you're brought in to do some web development. Uh, You go and look and say like, well, why am I here doing web development? You start asking some questions. And, you know, of course, there was a decision to build a website. And maybe it was uh, you build a website so that you can uh, expand the channel of ordering to be online. So historically, the business can only take orders of the phone and it was getting expensive to employ a lot of people. So the decision was made to take online orders um, in order to maybe reduce the cost of uh, staff for taking orders. Now you're kind of getting into this um, diagnosis and prescription arena. The prescription was uh, making a website to allow online ordering. So the diagnosis was, hey, it's too expensive for us to be employing all these people to take orders over the phone. Well, this is interesting now. You can start to work your way towards the economic buyer because you know who's saying something like it's too expensive for us to continue taking orders over the phone? That's probably someone in the C-suite. That's a C-suite type of discussion. Or, uh, you know, I guess depending on the organization, maybe a little level, but probably like VP. It's cross-departmental, it's strategic, it's a budgeting decision across the organization. So by working, you know, from you are here applying a therapy, by working your way backwards toward that uh, prescription and that diagnosis, you can start to reason about what your buyer cares about. So that's another great way to move uh, in that direction. And then um, maybe the, the last one that's the most vague is to start kind of climbing the value chain. It's sort of like tied in there, but if if you just look and you look at the organization above you and what those people care about in terms of your engagement, you can start having conversations, just asking questions. You know, you were brought in by a system. What does the dev manager you're reporting to as a freelancer care about? What does the dev manager's boss care about? If you can sit down and have those conversations, you can kind of also help yourself work your way towards the strategy angle with the uh, diagnosis and prescription. Um, And then I'll mention another thing that can sort of bridge the gap a little bit. But um, if you start to create lower priced offerings than just, you know, I'm going to sell six months of my labor at a time, which is going to be a six figure offering. If you start to build things like little trainings or you start to, you know, maybe you write a book and you sell it to people, you can get um, you can sort of lower the org chart or lower the position in the org chart of your economic buyer. So if you're um, doing application development and you're selling software labor and you want to maybe change who your buyer is, if you write a book on, you know, here's how to do some things in Ruby, you could sell that to individual contributors. Even if it were like a three or $500 info product, a software developer might still buy that out of pocket. So you you can get into a direct buyer situation or you can be in that influencer um, buyer situation where maybe, you know, Reuven on the uh, on the podcast is a great example of this. 
where Reuven has an influencer buyer situation between Python developers and then, you know, management or director or VP, whoever's making the decision to bring Reuven in to do training. So by looking at offerings that are less monolithic than giant chunks of app dev, you can also start to get in front of economic buyers, albeit different ones. All right, so I think that's going to probably wrap it about economic buyers. Let me just put a summary on this and say, if you're not thinking about who your economic buyer is, the very first step that you should be doing as a freelancer, consultant, anybody with a business, even moonlighting, anybody with a business interest, is start to think through who is your economic buyer? What does this person care about? Just starting to understand that and reason about it will start your wheels turning about like, all right, how do I get in front of this person? How do I appeal and speak to this person? And that's kind of the path to a lot of good things in your career as a freelancer and just in your career in business in general. It's gonna make your sales and marketing a lot easier, your pipeline management, it'll make it easier for you to find work and it will um, help you become kind of more consultative and expert in your career. All right, so with that, I am going to go into picks and the first one is going to come as no surprise to anybody since I've alluded to it twice. It is the book Million Dollar Consulting, and the premise of that book is that it is possible to create a business where you're a solo consultant that does seven figures a year in revenue. Uh, that sounds uh, probably pretty crazy to a lot of you listening, but it really isn't. I haven't done that myself, but I have... Um, you know, a couple of years ago when I was doing management consulting, realized some pretty, you know, significant revenues that would have put anything I was doing in terms of just miscellaneous um, project to project freelance work to shame. So um, it is possible. Uh, you know, I don't know whether I could have gotten to seven figures a year in revenue or not if I had kept following that playbook. Um, but, you know, who knows? And um, the reason to read it in the context of this particular episode is that there's a lot of great advice in there about uh, engaging with understanding economic buyers and how to sell and so on and so forth. The other pick that I'm going to offer is utterly and completely unrelated to anything I just talked about in terms of an economic buyer, but it is a new mailing list I've created for anyone who is looking for a side hustle or, you know, um, a more um, halftime or permanent hustle or what have you. But basically I have created this list um, that we're using for hit subscribe. So if you wanna see all of the different content creation opportunities that hit subscribe has, um, this is gonna be like anything from writing blog posts, um, you know, sort of lower touch things all the way on up to creating courses and doing onsite trainings, consulting assessment, you know, for thousands of dollars. We are putting out now an external emailer once a week that lists those opportunities. If you sign up for that mailing list, you will just, um, we're planning on every Thursday, sending out opportunities, not just within hit subscribe, but any kind of like nice side hustle opportunities uh, that I'm hearing about, I will curate that list. So um, that is my second pick, the hit subscribe side hustlers email list. If you want to sign up for that and check it out, you are welcome to, please do. And that is going to do it. Thank you, as always, for listening, and uh, we will catch you next time. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y dot com to learn more.